This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the John Oakley Show podcast for Monday, September 28, 2020. It's a horror story, all right. Families across this country claim they didn't get the sperm they were promised. And now it's the children who'll be paying the ultimate price for the rest of their lives. How do you feel about a second carbon tax? Dear God, probably the same way we felt about the first one. A home security system supposed to keep strangers out of your home. What happens when it becomes the back door they use to get in? All of this starts now. When it comes to folks who want to use the services of a sperm bank, this is a fascinating story or account. Seven Canadian families have launched lawsuits against this sperm bank called Outreach Health Services after being misled about their sperm donor's history, which included a degenerative genetic condition and falsified educational background. On the line with us right now, James Fireman, lawyer and partner at Samfiru Tamarkin. You know them as the Employment Law Show, which you hear every Monday and Wednesday right after 7 o'clock here at Global News Radio 640 Toronto. James, good to have you on the Oakley Show this afternoon. Appreciate your joining us. John, thanks for, so much for having me on. I think you really sort of hit it on the head when you were talking about how this impacts all families really across the country that are forced to rely on sperm banks to start their families. A really interesting issue. Well, it's fascinating to me. I mean, so uh, the donor's history did not come necessarily as advertised. This almost sounds like false advertising. Is this more or less, in a layperson's terms, uh, the whole premise of your lawsuits? Yeah, yeah. If you want to just whittle it down to its bare essence, that's essentially what it is. So uh, we have these seven families, each of whom have started families with with that sperm donated from this one individual. They use, you know, donor rather loosely. I mean, they are paid for their services. But he was held out to be uh, someone of advanced education. He was held out to be a cytogenesist, whatever that means, and uh, was held out, more importantly, to be a very healthy individual with no issues. And this company had suggested that they had done extensive screening, not just on his background, but also genetic screening as well. And turns out none of that was true. What they found out afterwards, unfortunately, after each of these families had already conceived, was that most, you know, there were some issues, uh, you know, mis, uh, misrepresentations about his education and so forth. But much more importantly, there was not proper genetic screening done. And the donor had what's called charcot Mary tooth disease, which is a genetic disorder. It's progressive. And it impacts about 50% of children who have a parent that, uh, that has this marker. And of the families, you know, five of them have been tested and the children have it, which means that at some point they're likely going to start showing symptoms. And that can start from when they're five all the way up to 25. And so it's really an incredible blow to these families to learn this information when they had relied on this, this defendant, this outreach, um, to ensure that what they were getting was safe, what they were getting was as advertised, and it just was. So you're representing on seven families, uh, to your knowledge. Are there more than that, or is that the, the sum total right now? Well, in Canada right now, that is as many as I'm representing. Uh, I know that there are other families that have started children, that, sorry, that have started their families with children conceived from this particular donor. 
Uh, and, you know, th- this is not just a Canadian issue, but it certainly affects Canadians. There are families that have been started, I know, in the United States. And actually, uh, there was a, there's a related case going on. And I'm told that uh, in Georgia, there's a big win in the Georgia Supreme Court uh, today involving this case. So you're going to hear more about it from south of the border for sure. Uh, but, you know, what is really significant is that as Canadians, we don't have the same access to, to sperm banks that Americans have, and I suppose other countries as well. It's very limited here. And so we actually have to rely on distributors to bring it in from other places, such as the United States. And that's what's happened here. And because of that, uh, and because it's regulated uh, very inconsistently, I believe it's at the state level in the United States, you really don't know what you're getting. You don't know what you're getting. You know, they hold out that they do all this testing, but, you know, you come to find that you're relying on them in a way that they really don't deliver. So how did you find out? uh, Who flagged this originally? Did it come out of the States? I mean, this Outreach Health Services, I'm assuming, is an American company. Maybe it has a Canadian branch. Well, I'll let them answer exactly how they, they, their corporate structure works. As I understand it, they are or were a subsidiary of a larger American company that was responsible for um, collecting the samples in the States. Uh, but, you know, the way that this was actually found out is quite interesting. So the, the mothers who have had children from this particular donor are all connected through a Facebook group, uh, and they talk regularly. And one of them went out and did some sleuthing on, on her own and actually found the, a, a picture, found a, a, a Facebook profile of this donor and looked at it and, you know, recognized that some of his pictures, he had some, you know, his legs look strange. And so they did some testing of their child and found out that he had this, this TMT one, it's the short form. They had this marker and notified the, uh, the sperm bank about it. And subsequently there was testing done and it was found out that he in fact does have this marker and that all of the children conceived from this donor may have it. And that's just horrifying. Right. And uh, based on his background as well, uh, his bona fides, it turns out he wasn't like a geneticist or he was just a lab technician, wasn't he? That's correct. That's that's the information that I have. Right. And uh, as far as the genetic marker that has consequences medically, uh, if I'm understanding it correctly, this is going to require constant screening and treatment uh, going forward for these children? Yeah, I mean, there's that element of it for sure, and that's more than enough just in and of itself. But it's really, it's much broader than that. You know, I'm a father. I've got two young kids, and I I can go to the park with my kids and watch them play and just be with them and not have to worry about something in the back of my mind. When you talk to my clients about what their experience is, they see their kids go out, and they trip and fall. And in the back of their mind, they're thinking, is this the first sign? Is it happening? Are they starting to develop symptoms of this disease? And they just don't know. And, you know, you think about how that impacts your relationship with your children and your family as a whole. And it's impossible to appreciate. I, I can't even begin to imagine how difficult it is. So finally, James, how do you put a monetary figure to something like this? I honestly don't know. I, I, you know, right now it, it is, you know, we have to speculate, look forward to, you know, what the costs are going to be, the actual out-of-pocket costs, and then, you know, the cost to their well-being, to their happiness. I mean, I, I, I honestly don't know how you put a, a dollar figure on it. And, you know, you have to start somewhere, but, it, you know, it's impossible to quantify. It really is. So what's the original ask going in? I think, obviously, you've got to do that initially, don't you? 
Yeah, there's a statement of claim for each of them, and it has uh, what's called a prayer for relief, and you ask for the most that you think might be available there, but you know that's really not what's important here. I, I, I mean, I think the combined number is something like 30 million for all the families. You know, what is important is looking at what these families are going to need and what they're going to go through um, as the as these children get older and as they start to develop symptoms and require more care, require more treatment, assistive devices and testing, um, and the impact that it's going to have on their families for the rest of their lives. It's a class action. Is this a criminal case as well to your mind? It's well. It, first of all, it, John, it's not a class action. It's you know, it's a technical difference. But they are seven separate cases that are being brought. Um, it is not a criminal case, or at least um, it is not at this point. If it were to happen, I suspect that that would happen in the United States and not here. Fascinating story, James, and uh, the people who have been impacted hail from, as I understand it, Ontario, Quebec, BC, Alberta, Newfoundland, so a uh, pan-Canadian issue as far as this is concerned. Good luck with it. Uh, it needs to be clarified and uh, bring the weight of the whatever down on them uh, for this yeah, representation. Thank you so much for having me on and for helping shine the light on this issue. I think it's really important and it's greatly appreciated. Right. You know, I guess I, I should ask, just in closing, I mean, if anybody goes this route, how can they be certain uh, that they're getting, uh, you know, somebody who's been represented here through the sperm donation process as a donor uh, who does live up to the expectation and doesn't have these genetic? How would anybody make sure it's fail proof? Well, I mean, I think in Canada, one of the things that you can do is use sperm from a known donor. So if you know someone, you can use them, and then you'll obviously have a much better family history and the ability to do genetic testing. Uh, but in terms of you know importing it from, from the United States or for somewhere else, I don't know the answer to that. I don't have it. It's yeah. something that I wish there was a better answer for. Sounds like it, uh, people rolling the dice in their desperation. James, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Very welcome. Take care. James Fireman, lawyer, partner at Samfiru Tamarkin. Uh, you know them from the Employment Law Show. You hear every Monday and Wednesday evenings after 7 right here. The government as well, uh, they were talking today about, uh, you know, aligning with the wishes of the NDP and uh, for COVID coverage with the CRB and so on and so forth after people don't qualify for EI now that the service discontinued. But still, they were also uh, addressing in the throne speech last week, you might recall, how green is our valley. And uh, they're going all in on green. That is not necessarily a good thing because there's an, a secondary carbon tax that's been introduced in effect. And here to tell us all about that, Dan McTagg, who is the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Dan, always a pleasure to have you on the Oakley Show. Good afternoon. Great to be here, John. Thanks for having me. So uh, Justin Trudeau, in the throne speech, introduced what you say is the second carbon tax. What do you mean by that? A second carbon tax, because we haven't heard much about this. It's known as the clean fuel standard, and uh, even in that throne speech, there was no mention of it. Uh, this is really a rather significant tax that hits all forms of uh, fossil fuels, if you will, coal, natural gas, uh, oil, uh, even uh, refined products like uh, diesel, aviation fuel, jet fuel, uh, home heating fuel. Uh, all of those products are going to be uh, now subject to a tax with the idea that we need to reach reduce uh, 30 megatons of carbon. So it's not enough to have an existing carbon tax, uh, which will you know, bring us a lot closer to what is a reduction of uh, 50 uh, megatons. They want another 30 on top of that. To get there, they have to actually put a tax 
at the extraction level, at the distribution level, at the refining and processing level, and of course at the end use. In other words, uh, another tax is coming. This one, this time, it won't be rebated, and it really does speak to uh, a government that is uh, really hell bent on imposing, uh, you know, what is for many a, a very irrational tax uh, based on the assumption that somehow you can reduce consumption or you can reduce emissions by simply taxing this away. Of course, this runs contrary to what economists have been saying for some time. There can only really be one form of efficient uh, type of carbon tax, and that's one that is directed uh, against consumers or onto consumers, uh, and that you shouldn't be meddling around with regulations as well as uh, leaping on yet another tax. So it is a second tax. It's a stealth tax, and it's surprising. There has been a lot of discussion about it. It's actually at the point of almost coming into law, that is to say, it is almost to be gazetted. There's been very little debate on this, very little understanding what it's going to do, but its implications. Uh, John, uh, I don't want to overstate it. We've put a study together uh, by LFX and Associates, a group of several economists. They've concluded that the impact to the Canadian economy, apart from raising the cost of living, 13 cents a litre for gasoline, over and above the existing carbon tax, doubling the uh, cost of, uh, of, of natural gas, uh, potentially leading to $22 billion leaving our jurisdiction in Canada. They've also concluded this will not have the effect of reducing carbon taxes. Quite to the contrary, it may actually be a, sort of a lost uh, venture as the economy grows. So uh, at the end of all this, uh, I don't know if we're all prepared to pay another $440 a year, but that's what's in store when the Liberals implement. And it's a really a question of when, not if, the uh, the clean fuel standard. Right, which is done, as you say, through regulation. I think this was the end around that uh, the Obama administration also implemented stateside. I mean, you do things through regulation rather than legislate tax increases and so on and so forth, uh, seeking to accomplish pretty much the same thing. So this is why you're calling it a second carbon tax. And you do also say Wednesday's throne speech made one thing clear. The liberals are not backing down from their unachievable net zero goal. They're saying by 2050, everything's going to be net zero. How is that and why is that unachievable? Unachievable because we have a country where we already have clean energy. For instance, we do produce uh, a significant amount of natural gas. A lot of our electricity is produced either by hydro or by nuclear. That's clean energy. But the bigger issue here is in terms of net zero, what would it require? If you take all of the fossil fuels that we use uh, to produce and to maintain our standard of living, that is the petrochemical sector, uh, the transportation sector, which, by the way, has gone down this wonderful road of uh, creating uh, products that are very clean. Uh, average vehicles now, according you know, to the, look at the study that's there, you can find that at affordableenergy.ca. It's a chance that you know, for every car that's on the road uh, in 1975, uh, it would take 18 cars to produce the kind of emissions that we saw uh, back in 1975 to 1980. So a lot of good has already been done. To get to net zero emissions requires primarily electrification. That's probably five, six, or even seven trillion dollars. And we're lamenting a $1.1 million, uh, a trillion dollar deficit debt right now in Canada. How are we going to possibly implement something like that at a time when no country in the world, no country in the world is actually taxing at every level of the life cycle of our fossil fuels? Fossil fuels have provided not only affordability, but they've also given Canada a strong reputation as a producer of clean energy and why we've got to throw the baby out with the bathwater and trade away something we've done good and are internationally recognized for doing something good is beyond me. But I don't think the Trudeau government gets it. They're about to really do some significant damage, not only to our reputation, but to the bottom line of every consumer, as well as business in this country.
Again, with Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP and president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Well, I mean, they went all in on green. You know the story. Uh, the green economy is going to uh, lift all boats. It's going to create a million jobs. The net zero by 2050, I've already alluded to. Uh, you laughed at that. Why is that uh, a, a fallacious claim? We heard that 10 years ago. Ironically, by the same people, the Gerald Butts, the Sturialities, the Bruce Lurries, these are the individuals who are really pushing the Green Energy Act here in Ontario. Where's that 50,000 jobs you were supposed to get? We didn't. We actually lost, there were net jobs lost in Ontario as a result of those moves. We also know that it actually doubled the price of hydro for just about everybody. Every single day in this province and every year, we have to backstop and pay another five to six billion dollars to pay for these outrageous prices that we gave in terms of contracts just so we could buy uh, so-called renewable uh, clean energy, which, by the way, we already had, uh, and that's to pay for the grotesque numbers that we are required to play, pay uh, for windmill and for solar, even when they're not working. It's unfortunate the way that was uh, that was carried out, but it should be a lesson for all Canadians that you got it so fundamentally wrong 10 years ago, and we're continuing to pay for it here in Ontario. Why would you want to double down on something like that at a time in which the country is facing its most significant economic downturn since the Great Depression? To me, there is really uh, a really world of magic and make-believe. You have the politicians in Ottawa who think this is a wonderful idea, don't want to tell anybody about it, want to basically uh, ensure that uh, a lot of Canadians don't get uh, jobs. We see the divestment uh, that's happening not just in the uh, in the uh, fossil fuel industry, but also in the manufacturing sector. And yet we have, you know, the real world in which people are living, 49% of us, if polling is correct, are $200 away from uh, going bankrupt on any given week because we can't make ends meet. This, by the way, John, is critical because if the CFS goes through as it is proposed, look for an additional $440 burden on every worker in Canada. So not a great way to, uh, to, uh, to provide Uh, a way out, a growth pattern to get us out of this uh, economic mess, this massive debt that we're in, and more importantly, one that bondholders are looking at very carefully. Watch for Moody's and Fitch uh, to respond very quickly with another downgrade, especially since these guys simply don't get the message. They're living on another planet, unfortunately, that was my Liberal Party. Well, it was. You're certainly a, a radical departure here. But Dan, Dan McTague is with us again, former Liberal MP, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy. In your report, uh, Speaking of the impacts, you say the additional emission regulation, and this is the clean fuel standard, uh, it undermines the efficiency of any existing carbon tax in reducing GHG emissions. How so? Well, critical to understand that green economists, some of the best known in the world, and I give William Nordhaus as a good example, a guy who won a Nobel Prize by coming forward and talking about the efficiency of carbon taxes, makes it very clear. You must have just one carbon tax in which you use that carbon tax and incentivize people to drop uh, their, uh, their, their emissions, whether that's industry or that's consumers or a combination of both, and you rebate. So there's an incentive, stick and carrot, if you will. But all economists in that field, at least most of them who are genuine and who are prepared to tell the truth, will say you are not supposed to complicate that with regulations or further carbon taxes, uh, the likes of which the world has never seen. Uh, uh, putting a tax on production distribution, processing, and end users is done nowhere else in the world. The only place we've seen it come even close to that was British Columbia's low-carbon fuel standard, which I have a lot to say about with your uh, colleagues uh, in uh, in Vancouver, uh, Linda Steele and company, when I basically mentioned them, it's cost them an additional $0.13 cents a litre just for gasoline alone, or California, 
where you see the price of electricity has gone through the roof when it's working putting too much of our uh, uh, of our uh, of our eggs in one basket has led to a very dangerous situation of brownouts and rolling blackouts that we've seen across that state with warmer weather so the reality is that where this has been implemented even a light version of it the economists are telling us be very careful don't go down this road but canada wants to go through with it without much scrutiny and that's why i think even economists are uh, are taking a, a second look at this and saying, if the government goes down with this this road of of a, of a uh, clean fuel standard, we're likely uh, not only to miss our target, we're likely to mess up the existing carbon tax and its rationale for it being in the first place. Well, and you cite further that the fuel standard may end up creating environmental challenges, not opportunities. Well, there you go and look at the fact that what are we relying on? Part of this is going to say, well, let's put a little bit more ethanol uh, in our uh, mix it with our gas. It sounds great on paper, except that the carbon footprint for creating ethanol is often far greater than even the production of gasoline itself. We think here, for instance, in the United States, where a good amount of, especially in the U.S. Midwest, where a lot of ethanol is uh, processed, a lot of it is derived from uh, products uh, that are made with uh, coal-fired generators. We also look at the fact that it'll drive up food prices, and not only potentially, but realistically. Uh, simply because uh, farmers will opt to produce corn or other ethanol pot products as opposed to other food products that we need to keep ourselves healthy and, and strong and uh, keep the uh, agricultural sector uh, you know, responsive to the demand for other products other than ethanol. Finally, when we look at uh, ethanol itself, uh, <laughs> put a little bit more in your tank, you'll see that your, uh, your, your vehicle fuel efficiency drops. I don't want to say dramatically, but it certainly isn't the same as pure gasoline, and I think that's a pretty strong point that's been made, not only by myself, by economists. Uh, and I think uh, the study does suggest uh, in many ways that it'll have the unintended effect of doing just the opposite, that is to create more harmful emissions as opposed to reducing the emissions it's trying to, to, uh, to solve. All right, well, has this ship sailed already with the clean fuel standard, or is there a way of uh, maybe impeding its progress or uh, rescinding it or repealing it, whatever the deal may be? How do you see it, Dan? Well, John, I see it as, as it's a bit of a spotlight put on it. Uh, we need to have a better understanding of the implications, and your listeners need to know, can they afford, on top of the $0.10 cent a litre increase that they're seeing at the pumps or the doubling of the cost of their uh, heating fuel, uh, particularly natural gas, propane, or uh, other forms of fossil fuels, uh, can they afford to pay more with very little to show for it at the end of the day? And I think you would find that there has to be a, a, a rather factual-based discussion as opposed to the government simply uh, imposing a tax by stealth, using the argument that somehow it's green. We know that uh, the green is really not about helping the environment. Uh, if, in fact, it was all about that, it's really about the green for some of those who stand to make a lot of money uh, by ensuring that their, uh, their green uh, markets, their credit markets, uh, their green investments uh, do much far better than fossil fuels. At the end of the day, though, you cannot create renewables. You cannot create a green environment without uh, the energy that Canada has. And that's energy not just in terms of hydro and nuclear. It's also, more importantly, the very single largest market we have in this country, the greatest export we have, which is the oil and gas sector. Without that, you haven't got a country. It won't be very long before manufacturing begins to follow. And we've seen that here in Ontario, where there has been a decline in manufacturing. Well, I guess good news, you know, they've got that pipeline the Americans are underwriting going from Alberta to Tidewater in Alaska. <laughs> you got, you got to like that, at least as a development in these crazy yeah, times. Reminds me of what happened uh, just a few weeks ago when we had to send a ship all the way from Vancouver to, uh, to New Brunswick, to the Irving Refinery, to get Canadian oil there because we don't want to have a pipeline going across the country. Look, the world is laughing at Canada. 
I'm more concerned about the fact that Canadians won't be able to make ends meet if we continue down this road of putting forth bad public policy. The clean fuel standard is another example of green policies that are irrational and at the end of the day uh, do very little to advance the cause of green. What they actually do is create uh, a significant drawback uh, to the future of this country and I, at a time in which we absolutely need not to be experimenting uh, with things that we know don't work. Just ask anybody paying a hydro bill here in Ontario. Dan, appreciate your enlightenment here. Uh, we're going to keep a, a wary eye out for this, where we're going with the clean fuel standard. Uh, thanks for weighing in this afternoon and sharing that with us. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me, John. You got it. Dan McTague, former Liberal MP and President of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Fascinating story of a woman in Stony Plain, Alberta, who uh, was standing in her hallway when I guess she got uh, buzzed that there was a stranger who could control her security. All of the apparatus that uh, would unlock the doors, the windows, turn the lights on and off. And she freaked. And uh, she had no idea how this was possible to do. But there's a story behind it that should serve as a cautionary tale for everybody who has one of these security company contracts. Joining me on the line, Kevi Fowler, partner and global incident response leader with Deloitte, uh, who is going to explain this phenomenon and maybe us, uh, enlighten us further. Kevi, good to have you on the Oakley Show. Good afternoon. Thanks, John. It's great to be here. So in the story uh, of the woman in Stony Plain, Alberta, uh, what exactly happened? Uh, who was the stranger that alerted her to the fact that she was obviously vulnerable and could be violated this way? Well, if you take a look at what happened, that story was one isolated incident. If you look at the broader issue, most households have home security systems. These systems have cameras and they integrate with other household devices, thermostats, door locks, you name it. And access to these systems is controlled by the homeowner. But when a homeowner decides to move and makes a request to cancel the service to their security monitoring company, it can take anywhere from 30 days to six months for the security company to actually cancel the service. So during the time, a new homeowner would move into the home and unknowing to the new homeowner, the old homeowner still has access to the system. And the old homeowner, as well as anyone else, they share the password or the access codes too. That could be cleaners or babysitters or friends of the family, etc. So it's a, a very, very serious issue and one that puts the new homeowners at immediate risk. And that's exactly what happened with the story you just referenced. Well, in that story, so the stranger was the previous homeowner, uh, but it was all done with no malice or in, uh, ill intent, was it? No, based on the story you're referring to, in this case, the old homeowner contacted the new homeowner and was able to demonstrate that he still had access. And he did this in a way just to let the new homeowner know about the risk and for them to take measures to actually protect themselves. There's a lot of other scenarios or situations that we've seen where the new homeowner has not been that lucky. And there have been malicious activities that have been carried out by other individuals, not necessarily the prior homeowner. Right. So in this case, if the uh, previous homeowner alerts her that he still had control, uh, if he is it on him to uh, tell the company that he's canceling because he's moving or is it up to her or I mean, is there a point that she would just continue on with the contract but have different security settings? How would that work when there's a transitional phase? Yeah, that's a great question. And typically with security monitoring companies, as I mentioned before, it can take anywhere from 30 days to six months for them to actually cancel the service. 
many of these home monitoring companies actually hope that the new homeowner will move into the home, contact them, and want to set up service. And they can just change a few details, contact information, etc., and not have to cancel and then reinstigate the service again. So it's actually in the security monitoring company's best interest not to cancel it immediately. And that's quite often what results in that delay. That almost sounds like the old ruse of a negative option billing. You know, uh, if you're just maintaining the service, then you're going to have to pay. And they're waiting for you to base They're baiting you. Uh, so, but if you wanted to cancel, uh, do you then the new homeowner alert or does the one who's no longer living there have to contact the company to cancel or is it either or? Um, it is either or. Typically, it would be the existing homeowner. If I had a home, I would call the alarm company and let them know that I'm moving as of a certain date, and I want them to cancel the service. Because you have to keep in mind, my credit card would still be in file, and I would still continue to be billed for the service. I'm not going to wait for the new homeowner to hopefully call and cancel and release my credit card to not be charged for this monthly service. So the onus is really on both the old as well as the new, but most existing homeowners should make the call. And there's a specific way that you should actually try and handle the cancellations. Uh, the first one is to make sure you get a copy of the contract. And a lot of times you just don't have the contract. It's been years and years since you set up the service. So you can actually request it from your security monitoring company. But you want to make sure you understand what the cancellation clause is. There can be some pretty hefty termination fees if you cancel a day ahead of a certain period that's documented within the contract. But before you actually cancel the service, make sure to remove your credit card from the system. A lot of times there's auto billing that's set up, and whether this goes on for six months before it's action, your credit card can continue to get billed. So you want to make sure you remove the credit card from the system, then you ask them to cancel the service, and you request a confirmation email when they've actually done that. Again, with Kevi Fowler, partner and global incident response leader with Deloitte. On this story, uh, as I said earlier, a cautionary tale, woman in Stony Plain, Alberta, who was notified that uh, a stranger, albeit he was a previous owner, still had control of her security apparatus, including locks on doors and windows and the lights and uh, maybe the thermostat uh, could make it uncomfortably cool or hot at night if it's in the wrong hands. You know what it speaks to, Kevi, because we're talking about the onus being either on the previous owner or the current owner. What about the law? I mean, where is the law in this? Maybe the law ought to be a little more emphatic in uh, suggesting how these things are handled so the security companies themselves don't give you this 30-day window where they're hoping to extend the contract and so they're playing games with you. Should there be a hard and fast set of laws in this? There's actually been quite a bit of discussion, uh, especially recently with some of the exposure of the case you just mentioned. Um, the privacy laws in Canada are a little outdated when it comes down to cancelling um, uh, services that put homeowners at risk. Uh, so hopefully that's something the laws will actually come up to speed with and be able to better support homeowners based on this new age where everything is digitized. There's Internet of Things with smart devices you're connecting to your homes. And with that access in the wrong hands, it could be quite damaging to homeowners. All right. Again, a cautionary tale. Uh, all's, well, that ends well in this woman's case anyway. It was the previous owner. He was just giving her the heads up as to something that may be uh, part of what you have to deal with if you're changing homes, domiciles, or even uh, programs. Kevin, thanks so much for that. Uh, very important story. Thanks for sharing with us. Thanks for having me, John. You got it. Kevin Fowler, again, partner and in global incident response leader with Deloitte. 
This has been the Oakley Show podcast for Monday, September 28, 2020. You can listen live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 